Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> your host on this most epic journey through pop culture's past. Hold on to your butts. This is Nostalgia Theater. Brought to you by the Movie Film Podcast. They're coming to get you, Barbara. everybody as this episode drops it is october 1st 2018 and that is the 50th anniversary of director george a romero's night of the living dead the creepy classic not only led the late mr romero to sequelize himself over the next several decades with dawn of the dead day of the dead and more but his film also gave birth to an entire subgenre of continuations remakes and parodies all paying homage in big ways and small to where it all started night of the living dead Everything from The Walking Dead to Shaun of the Dead to 28 Days Later owes some piece of their success to what Romero and writer John Russo managed to pull off with no budget, no stars, no extended locations, and no color low those 50 years ago. And here to discuss the 50-year history of the Romero zombie on screen as well as the broader history of the zombie genre is my guest, Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg, who has a new book, Journey of the Living Dead, which is out right now. Uh, Arnold, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you joining me. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So uh, talk to me about your history with with uh, zombie movies. I feel like everyone has that one moment. They were they were at the wrong age when they were exposed <laughs> to it, and it just planted that. The, the, the virus took root, if you will. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's only in recent years that I've really kind of nailed down exactly where my personal experience with it may have started and I don't have a hundred percent clear memory, but the story I'm now, I'm now telling is that I think the first time I ever really saw a zombie movie or a part of one was watching Halloween two and seeing the clip of night of living dead and Halloween two and being intrigued by this other movie. Yeah. So that may be the first time I certainly know that night would have been playing quite a bit on like the late night channels. Um, I might have encountered it somewhere around that same time, but I don't have a clear memory of a specific starting point. But I know that Halloween 2 
was uh, a big part of it. So, and since I love that series so much, it's only natural that I would have thought, well, if this is so good, I better seek out what this other thing is that's in there. How funny! And, so, so, how old were you when you watched Night of the Living Dead for the first time? Uh, it would have probably been then, maybe eleven or twelve, okay. something like that. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, I I don't have a clear memory of when that was. But it would have had to have been around then, and I know I saw Halloween 2 right around when I was 10 or 11, so that would have followed shortly after. Well, and let's let's take a, a broader view of of the longevity of this genre, because you know we can point to Night uh, of the Living Dead as being the birth of the modern what we what we sort of collectively think of as the movie zombie. Um, mm-hmm. Why? What what is the appeal? Uh, of uh, you know, I mean, uh, m- more so than slasher movies and things like that. I feel like uh, zombie movies have had a longevity that is kind of a kind of amazing. Well, it goes back to certain more universal ideas about what makes the zombie such a potent figure in pop culture, and these are like uh, I, I hesitate to say simple because I mean, for anybody, it could be a, like a, a moment where you think, "Oh, I never thought of it that way," and it's very. Intriguing. So it could very well be that some people would think, well, this is an interesting way of looking at it. For me, it's I say simple because then you start delving into so many more specifics. Hmm. But in a in a general sense, uh, the zombie is just one of the most basic, most um, simplistic ways to generate fear and to represent fear in a story because you've taken what is basically a humanoid form, you've taken a human being, you've depersonalized them, dehumanized them in one way or another. And of course, in many of these stories, it's your family, it's your friends. It's basically the closest human figure you can get to yourself and the people that you love. And then you take that figure and you turn it into a vessel for whatever we're afraid of at any point in time Hmm. in culture. And it's just so universal and so malleable yeah. for any time period that, like you just said, I mean, slasher movies come and go, and there's reinventions. And really, zombie movies come and go, too. There's different interpretations, but it's just such a, a perfect, potent image that we keep re- reusing. It's You know, what, what occurs to me is, uh, you know, th- there's the element of being you and not you, and that is... Yeah, extremely unsettling. And I think back to I mean, these these are, uh, I suppose, what one could argue adjuncts, you know, I think back to uh, uh, when I watched the first Planet of the Apes when I was a kid, uh, mm. the the moment that I found most unnerving is when Charlton Heston finds, uh, you know, Robert Gunner, his his uh, his crew member who's been lobotomized. Yeah. And even as a little kid, I mean, I'm talking, gosh, I couldn't have been even 10 years old. And I just, that part of that movie always just scared the shit out of me. Oh, yeah. You and know? of course, it, if there's one thing that I I love as much as, as, if not more than really, the Halloween movies or zombie stuff, it's Planet of the Apes. Sure. So, you know, it, <laughs> you have me on that one. And I think <laughs> the age is probably about the same, too. I was probably seven or eight when I saw yeah. Well, so and, and, it, and I draw right. that corollary, you know, and and actually uh, another I, this occurs to me as I'm talking to you, uh, you know, uh, the best of both worlds on on Star Trek. Um, sure. When oh Cap- my God. Captain Picard, in effect, is turned into a zombie. Absolutely, the Borg are zombies. Yeah. I mean, I I count them. They're and and certainly First Contact is a great zombie movie. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, but oh boy, you're really hitting the touchstones today. So <laughs> sure. Best of both worlds. I mean, the thing is, it's interesting. 
you you draw you're drawing that great line how all of these things are about the exploration of dehumanization and particularly like you were just pointing out the dehumanization of you yourself yes. because we're identifying with our heroes or with our heroes friends and it's the idea and that's why in some of these zombie stories one of the more intriguing little elements is do they still remember yeah. you know is there still a person in there not only does that bring up the ethical questions of whether it is truly right to just gun them down if there's a human trapped in a shell but it also suggests that if you turn what would your point of view experience be yeah. of you know transforming into the other yeah and and i think that goes to something uh, certainly, it's a it's a it's a, a recurrent motif in in the Romero films where you have that one character whose point of view we were following who reemerges as a, as a ghoul. Absolutely, and and I, in particular, I, I don't know. Just the first thing that occurs to me, and and I think I talk about it a bit in the book too, is um, that I've always been fascinated by. Um, Emge's transformation, was, Stephen's that's transformation. That's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. Yeah, and and then and then you know, in retrospect, looking back at his behavior right after, and I always try to deconstruct. It's like, what is he remembering? What is he thinking when he leads them all down that little hallway, you know, to where they made the false wall? And yeah. it's that kind of thing, exactly. That that uh, Romero explores quite a bit. Well, and and you know, I mean, certainly for me. Uh, Romero was my end point. And I, I'm, I'm a relative latecomer to this genre, and I'm the furthest thing from, from an expert because uh, really uh, Romero is it for me. I, you know, I, I just couldn't get into the, the Russo, the, you know, the, the Return of the Living Dead movies. Oh. I, 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 I appreciated them, but I, I found um, the, the, I found the Romero canon much more unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You know, uh, so so zeroing in on that specifically, mm-hmm. um, with with what he accomplished over his, uh, what what were they six? How, how many? How many? Six did he event, make? Six by the end. Six, yeah. Right. If you include uh, survival of the dead, right? Yeah. If, if we include it. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. and and I I mean I gotta say I I was uh, somewhat uh, I was nonplussed by that one. It didn't really it didn't really land for me, unfortunately. No. Uh, no. That last one, but I mean certainly you know that the the, the you know those. The, the first four in you know land of the dead too uh what in your mind is the secret of his success well it's it's both a I, I wouldn't say it's much of a secret but i would say that it's it's uh it's both a blessing and a curse ultimately i think what it what it really comes down to is well, first of all, you go back to the original film, and there's a lot of misconception about that. Like a lot of people think, oh, this is this incredible low-budget horror movie that that made a lot of records before Blair Witch came along, and and uh, everybody was college buddies. And it's like, yeah, but they weren't unprofessional; they weren't amateurs. These right. were professional filmmakers. I think in revisiting the movie quite a bit in the last year or so. I've been newly taken by Romero's directing style and hmm. some of the really beautiful artistic things that he actually did that I just get so wrapped up in the characters and the story that I tend not to look at the composition as much. And now I have been and thinking about how that's beautiful. So he's a great director. He really knows how to shape a story uh, and also make it work well along with things like music. He was deeply involved as some directors sometimes aren't with shaping the soundtrack and so this is a man that had a keen understanding of storytelling 
And then after night and the slow buildup of its reputation hmm. and people like us back then telling him, you know what you just did with night is make the social statement. He then took that on board and said, well, you know what? Now we're really going to do that. And that leads to dawn. And then I think what really happened was you have a man who ultimately shaped a career really, although he did many other things, his career was very defined by these zombie yeah. films and, and that ongoing series of let's keep revisiting the zombie apocalypse often a little further along the way, although he shifted later. And Do you think he felt trapped else... by that? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think he not I, – but to – to finish, the the one thing was that I think he then took on board the idea that it was his responsibility to make a statement. Hmm. Fortunately, he's the kind of person who is talented enough to do that. Until the last couple where I feel he was really spinning his wheels. And I, and I agree with you that he felt trapped. I think it was very obvious. And I think that he unfortunately also fell victim to the same thing that a lot of people do, which is you have a very creative mind. You get older. Younger people come along to build on what you created. And you're not necessarily the flavor of the month or the new thing anymore. Hmm. And you either segue into that gracefully or unfortunately, like Romero, you start uh, doing very bitter interviews about how The Walking Dead is just a soap opera and that's not how <laughs> I would have done it. Sure. Except that The Walking Dead was a natural progression of everything he did. He was just not the person to do it anymore. And right. uh, that's just the way things go sometimes. That, you know that that is interesting in in that you know that the the both the comics and the show certainly exist within a Romero verse. You know the the zombies are 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 his zombies, so to speak. In in some respects, yes, and in some respects, I I, I point out where they aren't. For instance, hmm. um, Kirkman, of course, is all, Robert Kirkman has always said that you know The Walking Dead was inspired directly by the idea of you know let's make the zombie movie that never ends, which right. we I, I feel we've now discovered also has its own pitfalls. <laughs> Man, you, you ain't know. kidding. <laughs> yeah, but. Um, he also is very adamant about, you know, this was inspired by Romero, which is true, but it did also very much shape its own universe. One of the key things I always point out as an example, for instance, is that if you watch Night of the Living Dead, uh, the ghouls that start off Romero's version of the zombie cower from fire like Frankenstein's monster. They're terrified of it like an animal. They are also uh, turned away by light. And they even go out of their way to smash the headlights and, and get rid of the light. But they hate fire. The walkers in The Walking Dead will walk right into a blaze like nothing is in front of them hmm. and just keep walking while they're on fire. They do not have the same behavior. So there, there are elements of it where probably by virtue of Kirkman shaping the story he wanted to tell and then the TV series, they've created a version that is Romero-esque but does have – uh, different behavior. Hmm. It's, it's the walkers are a bit different from the ghouls and the zombies of Romero's universe. Well, just just so, cycling back to what you were saying earlier, I find it fascinating that uh, Romero didn't necessarily go into the original film with any real social commentary specifically in mind. That that's something that sort of got. Uh, you know that that later readings uh, uh, tacked on is is that am I interpreting right what you, what you said? I think that what happened, and when you look at contemporary interviews and then keep tracking forward, like let's say the ten years between night and dawn, what it really seems to be is they all got together. They wanted to make a midnight horror movie. Um, 
by virtue of the kind of people they were and the time they were living in, like so many other things, they were going to naturally infuse it with some of their own ideas. I think if any one person on that team could be directly credited with actually thinking consciously of making a statement in any way, it would be Dwayne Jones. Sure. Um, but who played I Ben? Feel, who, who played who the lead played, character? Yeah. Who played the lead character? Ben, right? And um, I feel that after the fact, the more Romero and Russo and the others, well, Romero in particular, I think, the more he was told, you know, you're a genius. This is a commentary on Vietnam and race riots and hmm. the destruction of the nuclear family. And as those ten years went on, it was it eventually became Romero saying, yeah, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe we were thinking all that and we did it. <laughs> But I don't think that they sat down and said, let us craft a socially relevant horror movie. They were trying to make something they could sell. And then we all came along afterward and said, yes, but you also did this. And then when Dawn comes along, it's very much top of mind. Like, all right, now we have to do something that's socially relevant. What shall we do? And history conspired to just drop the perfect metaphor in his lap with the mall and and off we're running and and you know to, to me certainly uh dawn of the dead is my favorite of his films uh for for a variety of reasons i actually just reacquired the like the collector set on dvd it is uh, ridiculously difficult to get a hold of that movie these days it, it's 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 baffling to me that it's not in print on blu-ray it's not available in streaming and I, I had that collector set. It was like a four-disc thing. Mm-hmm. And, and this, you know, this is like my life. Somebody got into my garage and oh, stole no. that. <laughs> That's <laughs> a very specific choice. It was very, you know, I'll tell you the stuff they stole. They, this, is, this is absolutely true. Uh, my Dawn of the Dead collector set and my complete uh, Dallas series on DVD. Oh, my. So... Uh, you know, this they, is just like a connoisseur of fine <laughs> film and television. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> and they they couldn't get it themselves, and it's like, well, I'm gonna have to rob somebody. It's right here, yeah. So so I find it just arrived in the mail a couple of days ago, and now I'm like trying to find a time to watch it because I can't be like, come on, kids, let's watch, you know, let's watch Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> I don't I don't think that'll work. But tonight's the European cut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. You know, but it's it's I what I what I love about the movie is how 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 gritty it is i mean it feels yeah. it doesn't feel um i mean this is going to sound bad and i don't mean it, it doesn't feel quote unquote professional it no but i know what you mean you in the way you're saying it feels like a documentary it feels real that's exactly right you know i mean yeah. the, the, most of these actors uh they're not familiar faces outside of this movie really right Right. Um, Absolutely. And that's what Knight is often credited with. And in many ways, I feel actually Dawn is even better in that respect, that it really feels like you're just getting a look into that world. So so with that in mind, I mean, I mean, the, the metaphors are, are pretty, pretty front and center. But uh, do you feel I mean, we you know, the, the age of the shopping mall is kind of done, it feels like, or at least on the sure. way out. Do you feel that the me- metaphors uh, of Dawn of the Dead uh, will continue to resonate even despite that? Well, one of the things that I always teach in any of my media literacy classes and and really try to um, instill in students is the idea that nothing really ages in terms of being able to utilize it as a text for, for interpreting and coming up with meaning and like resonance 
for the present as well as the past. So for instance, some things may work better than others, but for instance, I still teach, I teach, lately I've been teaching a lot of freshman composition classes, and I use Night of the Living Dead every semester. We're watching a movie that for these kids is like, it's not only before their time, but it's, this is over, it's 50 years old now, exactly. Yeah. And uh, after they get past the first 10, 15 minutes and get used to black and white, many of which, many of them will, will say they've never seen a black and white movie before, and get past the stilted acting and some of the things that granted are there, uh, it's amazing how quickly they get emotionally invested in the characters and start talking back at the screen or yelling at Harry or you know, being absolutely shocked with gasps of alarm by the ending. And it still works. And one of the things I always tell them is, here's the thing. This movie may be 50 years old, but you as a student in 2018 can still watch it and say, this still means something. This still resonates about this and this and this. And one of the things, unfortunately, that's also true is that many of the themes reflected in many of these old movies and TV shows are still issues we're struggling with today. We haven't really changed that much, and we haven't really improved a lot of things or learned. And so they do stand the test of time. And I think, yes, somebody, a kid today watching Dawn of the Dead will find them all quaint. Hmm. But the idea of consumerism is still the same. And all you have to do is tell them, yes, but think about this in terms of online shopping today. And how would that play out? And what would that, you know, metaphor be? And uh, before you know it, they understand and you move on. And and I think I think what you say is is really uh, a key to to uh, why that film in particular, Dawn, the original Dawn of the Dead, why it really does continue to to unnerve, you know, because uh, you know it the it it is something that is within our realm of experience. This idea of going to the shopping mall, and I mean certainly mm-hmm. for me, whenever I go to a mall, I can't help but sort of superimpose. Uh, Dawn of the Dead on top of that and be like, where am I <laughs> yeah. hiding? Where am I going? You know, and and you know, there, there's just something unnerving about an empty shopping mall or an un- I, you know? Well, that see, this is the thing: is that now that the mall era is really dying, and a lot of our <laughs> malls are dying, they almost seem even more appropriate to Dawn than they ever were because now you can play <laughs> that game in these malls. So, so let me ask you: I mean, Day of the Dead, it feels like. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't particularly well received at the time for a variety of budget reasons, whatever. It seems like, the, the, you know, things have come around where it, the, that is appreciated now. But mm-hmm. uh, where do you think that movie fell down? I mean, in terms of uh, there was obviously the anticipation of Romero returning and the movie didn't necessarily turn out as well as he would have liked or or audiences would have liked at that moment. There are interviews he's done where he uh, said that Day was his favorite. Um so I know that there's an element of even if it, it misfired in some sense, an element that he he liked that the best as a representation of what he could do hmm. uh, in the zombie genre. And as far as where it failed, it's hard to say. I mean, the thing is, I've always liked it, but I really do feel, particularly in writing about it, I really feel like my estimation of it has gone up even further. Sure. And, and and obviously, it has a lot of really strong and potent ideas and imagery. I still always say, every time I talk about it, I always say, I still think that movie in 1985 is still the pinnacle of practical zombie effects in, sure. in film. Well, that, that um, opening sequence with um, yes. that 
that dude with the hole. I mean, the, it, the, <laughs> the, the tongue. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing. There, there's still one shot that always gets me. And I, and every time I know it's coming, I'm still amazed. There's the shot where they, the, the zombies tear one of the guys apart and it's an unbroken shot. And they eventually like grab his head and pull his head off. And you realize that the entire time it's been on screen, that's been an animatronic head, hmm. but it is so well done and of course, these days they just CGI in the fake for the real, and it would happen in front of you, and you it would be seamless. This is being done in one shot, and clearly it's always fake. They're not swapping anything, and yet he looks real until the moment they start pulling him apart. It's a testament to Savini and Nicotero and everybody that was working on that. But um, but where it failed, I mean, I I guess if nothing else, we could say that. It suffered from what a lot of the movies suffered from at the time, which is if we had a movie that wasn't rated or that was you know, a particularly transgressive horror film, there was no place for it to go. It was sure. going to be in like lesser theaters. Eventually, of course, by the 80s, you're talking, well, it's going to come out on home video, but they're going to put it in the corner in the back with all the horror stuff that's right next to the curtain for the porn section. There, <laughs> there's uh, uh, an element of uh, isolation. To all that that meant that you had to discover it you had to find it as a fan you couldn't today day the dead would just come out you know just right. be released and um but then it, it was a struggle to be recognized and and i mean it it's it's interesting to me you know what you say about about how with each entry he's carrying the zombie apocalypse forward and i think that allows for this really fascinating progression of of uh, humans becoming inhuman, you know, in literally, and that they're they're becoming zombies, but also that the people that are left are just freaking assholes, you know. It's <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I, I know you're thinking about Rhodes and everybody else. There. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, Joe Pilato is is just chewing the scenery. Oh yeah. Uh, as I mean he's great, you know, he's a great villain, but it it you know, uh, you were mentioning The Walking Dead earlier, just drawing a corollary to that. I mean, I I honestly I reached a point with The Walking Dead where right around the time Jeffrey Dean Morgan showed up and he's battering people with the baseball bat and stuff, I I just stopped watching at that point. Well, you and I share that. Oh, I mean, it, the thing is yeah, go ahead. No, I, I mean, it, just, just to put a pin on that, I, I, I reached a point where I'm like, this is misery porn. This is, I, I just, I, I don't need this in my, like, I'm, I'm spending literally years with characters who, to some extent, they're taking up emotional capital in my head, and I don't want to see them battered and bloodied like this. It's just too much for me. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. We are one hundred percent in agreement. It is, and and the thing is, when I was doing the podcast originally, we started it primarily uh, as Walking Dead as a way of anchoring it in something that was clearly popular, and we could do on a weekly basis, and then you know embroider around that, you know, particularly when the show was off, and uh, be able to to showcase, bring some of my expertise and the scholarship I'd done to it, and and initially enjoyed it a great deal. And then as the show went on, one of the things, this goes back to what I was hinting at earlier. One of the things you discover when you try to tell the zombie story that never ends is that stories generally need an end. Yes. You actually do need an end. And you can tell another story, but you need to start another story. Once you have spun out this premise, 
you're just winding up asking and answering the same moral and ethical questions that have been asked and answered 400 times already to everyone's satisfaction. There is nothing new to learn, hmm. nothing new to be said. So and true. then exactly my point is I have watched hundreds of these movies. I've watched all this stuff. It's part of what I'm doing professionally. And yet when I watch the premiere where Negan beats Glenn to death, I, I was done. Yeah, And my wife, we were, we were sitting and watching it, and she said she had never seen me have such a visceral reaction to something. And I was like, yeah, I've seen people torn apart in a thousand movies, but this is just – this is torture for the sake of it. It's torture for entertainment. It's cruelty that is reveling in the cruelty for no reason other than to get ratings. And the thing that shocked me the most was – that that premiere was promoting itself in the lead up to airing with the full knowledge that many of us out there already knew what was coming because, of course, the comic had already done it. That's right. So they were either going to stick to it or give it a twist. In the end, they did that pretty much exactly right. But there were the, the promotion for the episode was very much like, hey, watch the season premiere and watch Glenn's head smashed in like a pumpkin. <laughs> Right. And and it's like that's not not only is that not entertaining to me, it's offensive. And it's not offensive because of the violence. Of course I also had to deal with a lot of people on Twitter who, you know, like many people on Twitter, absolutely fail to understand the point of whatever you're talking about. Right. It was not the it was not <laughs> what, the violence. Twitter? No. <laughs> yeah, I know. Tell me about it. It was not the violence or the gore. It was the fact that it was done for no purpose other than the sensationalism of it, that yeah. we were actually tuning in to enjoy that ostensibly. And I thought, you're done. You have nothing more meaningful to say. The story is just going to keep cycling. They're just going to meet yet another bad guy, yet another attempt to rebuild. I mean, they'd already done it already with the governor. They just hadn't done right. it. You know, They upped the ante. And to me, Negan – came along at a time, too, where I thought if I really want to watch a story unfold about, you know, a crazed, you know, sociopath who's imposing a fascist dictatorship on a group of people and beating everybody about the head, both physically and mentally, I can just turn on the news because that's <laughs> happening right now. So true. So I was done. And there were a lot of people that thought, how can you, the zombie expert, turn off The Walking Dead? And I thought, easy. <laughs> haven't turned it back on yet. Yeah, no, I'm I'm in the same boat and and it it brings to mind the wisdom in how Romero approached this universe, which was we're going to we're going to dip back in and follow new groups of characters dealing with different scenarios. Uh you know, because because the truth of it is that uh, you know, at the at the end of Dawn of the Dead for all we know, uh, you know, uh, Peter and Fran got away. At the end of Day of the Dead, for all we know, our characters got away. We know that if you're living amidst a zombie apocalypse, whatever happy ending you have is temporal at best. Mm -hmm. But we don't need to, you know, I we don't need to see that. Like, there's something about literalizing that, um, wh where we we see the limits of of uh, of that approach, and you know, uh, we see it on, on The Walking Dead. But I think. Uh, for me, like I love Land of the Dead, and I feel like I'm part of a select minority because I feel like a lot of people don't, which is kind of a shame. I, I think there's a lot in that movie. I think it's the last one of his that you can really argue has some real substance to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, yeah. the whole the whole thing, I'll tell you, I mean, you talk about things that are unnerving. For me, 
the 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 ghouls making their way through Fiddler's Green. Mm. Uh, it's so it's evocative of uh, you know Prince Prospero at the end of uh, uh, Mask <laughs> of the Red Death or something. You know, it's it's beautiful. It's actually beautiful imagery in that, and uh, and stuff that really weaves that movie into not just zombie movie history but horror history as well. Like them walking through the water, which. Yes. To me, always reminds me of even Zombies in Moritau, which isn't the most expertly crafted film, but it's still, you know, one of the early zombie movies that's that's of interest if you're delving into the history of it. And it's some beautiful stuff. And um, and yeah, I mean, after that, I don't feel he had really anything more to say. And in Diary, particularly, he was almost lifting and chunks of dialogue verbatim from Blair Witch. It was like rather than create his own ideas, he was borrowing them from another movie and that that felt wrong for someone like him to do that so land of the dead is i feel land of the dead is like his final solid statement on on the zombies of his universe well and and i mean why did he decide to i mean was it just curiosity of like hey can i try making a found footage movie you know you're getting older and you want to try to keep up with with the new trends was it as simple as that why he decided to wind the clock back and re restart the zombie apocalypse i mean as far as i can tell yes that to a certain extent there was that idea well what can we do now and that was that was an approach that was certainly very popular and still continues to be mainly because very often it of course it's also very often an incredibly disappointing experience because it's very often just a very cheap way for a bunch of people to be able to put a movie together is do the found footage approach. But right. the problem is it also it also inherently – it's usually structured as basically an hour and a half joke with a punchline. You know, you're going to get maybe one reveal. Like Blair Witch, of course, famously doesn't even give you that really. <laughs> um, and and I get the feeling that he was like, hey, all these kids are doing these found footage movies. What can we do with zombies with that? And there's – there's some things in diary that are kind of interesting, but I still, I still feel when I look at that and I can't look at it much, it's a movie that there's even a line of the sequence of dialogue. That's almost verbatim what Josh says to Heather and Blair, Witch. it's huh. like, if all you have is thematic material that you're lifting from the other movie that helped to, you know, spur on the found footage revival and, and, phenomenon then there's nothing really here that you have to say and it just is ultimately a failure of an experiment i think survival i just can't even muster much energy to talk about yeah but, no yeah. I, I i hear you and i and i and on uh, in all honesty i think uh one of the major ways both of those films fall down is that uh none of the human uh protagonists are particularly compelling well that's the that's the thing too is that in both of them, um, we've come so far down from the kind of characterization and storytelling he was doing, certainly in the first three. And then even in Land, you know, Land initially felt like it was less, you know, than the previous films. But in retrospect, maybe in comparison to what followed, you realize, no, there's there's good character. Uh, Dennis Hopper makes for a great uh, villain who's you know something only hopper could have done that kind of that kind of <laughs> character and uh and some very interesting stuff certainly in terms of the evolution of the zombie there's some interesting stuff going on there but yeah it does feel kind of like the end of the road at that point 
Well, you know, and and as as the road diverges, before we start talking about some of the more more modern iterations, uh, I did want to uh, get your thoughts on on the the Tom Savini the the remake of of Night from nineteen ninety. I I like the Night of the Living Dead remake a lot. Again, like I said about Day, my estimation of that remake has gone up substantially. Um, a lot of my insight into it now is informed entirely by watching it with Natalie, who saw things in it that I never saw hmm. and that I now find even more compelling, um, particularly the fact that um, her interpretation of the Barbara in that, which, of course, we've always talked about how, you know, that Barbara is a sort of ripplified, ripplified <laughs> Barbara. Right. Um and very much uh, an answer to the catatonic Barbara in the first film. And, um, but there's, I can't remember exactly word for word. I think Natalie and I talked about it in our show. And, um, uh, I certainly, I certainly built on that when I was writing about it for the book too, is that, uh, she picked up on one particular line of dialogue where they're trying to talk her down at one point. I think Tony Todd's Ben is trying to say to her, you know, calm down, you're going crazy, calm down. Um, and she has this uh, bit where she says something like, I'm not going to let anybody ever take anything away from me again. Hmm. Uh, and Natalie's reaction was, this woman has been raped or abused. Wow. Uh, and and everything that this Barbara is displaying in Night of the Living Dead is someone who was a victim turning into a survivor and determined to control her environment and never let anyone take control again. And when we started looking at it from that lens, I was like, well, damn, that's all right there. And I never saw that before. Me either. Uh, and it, and it, yeah, and it makes that character even more compelling. And already Pat Tallman's Barbara is a very cool character. And, uh, and then we also talked about the fact that when you watch that Ben, Tony Todd's Ben is not in control like Dwayne Jones's Ben. Tony right. Todd's Ben is ineffectual from the beginning and and panicked and confused and ultimately just a counterpoint to a far more villainous and cartoonish Harry. And right. the two of them are determined to take everyone down with them. They are they are like quintessential toxic male figures who are destroying that world. And so like all these different things. And it's like I already liked the movie. I always I always thought it had this great nihilistic mood that's in some ways more apocalyptic and frightening than the original. Hmm. Um, and now I like it even more. It it is interesting to me uh, because I the way you describe how how the character of Ben was was uh, you know re, repositioned in the remake I didn't even think about it that way but but you're you're really bang on you know it's it's fascinating it's it, in some ways I think well first of all of course the reason that movie suffered is because you know how is it not going to suffer you know everybody sure. there's that fan reaction of you know, how dare you you know, do something. And the thing is everybody involved with the original people, including Romero. So you'd think it would have had some goodwill there, but you know, people were just unwilling to accept that that one would exist. I think that's changed a great deal now though. I think that movie is one of the ones that's really benefited from time and, and reevaluation. And I don't think, uh, as many people seem to actively dislike that as used to. So, uh, I think that movie has benefited a great deal from, it's crazy that, that the remake is older now than the original one was back then. 
Oh my God. I can't stand when stuff like that happens. Like when people say like, uh, I saw somebody tweeting something like, do you know that it's like, uh, it's longer now back to back to the future than it was for Marty going back to 1955 and I'm like, shut up. Stop that. I know I'm old. <laughs> no, no, the remake. My understanding is it it essentially came into being because it was a way for Romero and Russo to finally make money off of the goodwill that the original movie had accrued. In a sense, yeah, and also an attempt to try to at least like regain some control of the title and the identity. I mean, they're just it's part of that whole long, convoluted, and sometimes kind of confusing copyright story and about the original. I mean, there nothing they did was going to reassert copyright over the prints of the original film. Right. So all they could try to do was try to, in some cases, muddy the waters, but but try to reassert ownership of aspects of it. And the idea for Romero was to do Night of the Living Dead, nineteen ninety and try to reclaim a bit of control that way. Russo's approach was to uh, shoot all that new footage for the 30th anniversary re-release of the movie and edit together a version that had that and call that Night of Living Dead. Hmm. Um, So both of them over the years were trying different things. Uh, And to some extent, they have finally succeeded Although Romero now, sad, doesn't get to see like the end of that story. And that now with the Scorsese-led 4K restoration that Criterion has put out, it's enabled them to put a copyright notice on that and say that particular version of Night of the Living Dead is copyright 2016, image 10. Uh, and the thing is, though, that doesn't change anything. That doesn't change anything about the original prints of the film. But I'm fairly sure that in the years to come, we're going to see – the original prints far less in circulation as they Mm. do everything they can to try to make sure that their version of it is what stays out there for people so they can try to control it. I mean, they're, you know, they're also older people now. There are a few of them left. They're trying in some sense, I guess, to establish their legacy for their families too, who frankly probably haven't benefited nearly as much as they should have from the impact this one movie has had on everybody yeah well and and you know we we alluded to it earlier but but you know we've we've spent a lot of time talking about romero but let's talk about the, the russo uh divergence if you will yeah um again i i mentioned I, I wasn't crazy about it doesn't mean i'm not uh i can't appreciate it but uh do, do you think uh, the Russo films, that, that the, the ones that spun off, you know, the, all the, the Return of the Living Dead sequels, do you think uh, they hold up? I mean, if we think uh, of a zombie movie being only as strong as its metaphor, uh, do, do the Return of the Living Dead movies hold up to that scrutiny? Well, I think the, re- the original Return of the Living Dead movie is one of those modern classics that most people seem to uh, – like love, or at least, as you say, at least be able to acknowledge, like, yes, I see what that movie is doing. It's, uh, I love it. I, I revisit it all the time. I think it's an excellent example of a truly, we mentioned nihilistic, a truly nihilistic and apocalyptic film that's perfectly suited for the middle of the 1980s when it came out. Yeah. Um, it's and also I should, worth I should note- mention, Arnold, by the way, that Return of the Living Dead is, in fact, the very first uh, zombie oh. movie. That's, that's what got me down this rabbit hole. Very interesting. Uh, about, okay, about eleven but years. That one ago. didn't stick with you, though. Is... Um, well, I, I, like I said, I appreciated it mm-hmm. uh, 
for what it was doing, uh, specifically the first one. I didn't I didn't see the sequels until later, and it got me intrigued enough to go back and watch Night, and then uh, from there I basically just tracked down the George Romero series. So so okay. I can absolutely appreciate. Um, the, the, how so many zombie tropes started there, you know, brains and things like that. That started the there. Brain thing started, yeah. You know, yeah. and and the I found that the the tone, the the discordant tone, I found fascinating. Like I found it very unnerving how it was trying to tightrope between, uh, you know, scaring the crap out of you and making you laugh. And I I found yes, you know, I I, I found that very effective. And I mean, it's it's like beneath the Planet of the Apes level nihilistic you know i mean it doesn't oh, get yeah. much darker than that ending you know no nope, no nope. yeah you're painting the wall with franciscus's blood and yeah. it's g-rated for the kids <laughs> um so yeah i agree i return of living dead so it's also worth noting that although we we often refer to it as like well this is the russo track so like russo and romero i don't know the extent to which there was any like bad blood or something happened and i still hmm. not 100 percent clear on what that was but obviously at some point they made an agreement with each other that they would both have the right to follow night of living dead but one at least one of the caveats that was always intriguing to a lot of fans is apparently in the deal they specifically uh said that russo could use the phrase living dead in his titles but romero had to drop that and just use dead which is why dawn of the dead is not dawn of the living dead right uh but then it took a little longer for Russo to finally get something done, which wound up being the same year that Romero was already on his third film. But it's also worth noting that although Russo's branch is Return of the Living Dead, it really isn't his because he had written a novel first. Then that went into development. The movie that became the, – the Return of the Living Dead that became that film is completely different almost entirely from Russo's novel. Hmm. And was written by Dan O'Bannon. And Russo later did a novelization of the movie, but he felt like he had had all of it taken away from him. Really? Okay. Yeah. So Russo never really got to do his Return of the Living Dead or his version of A Night Thread, except in some of the comics he wound up writing years later, I think for Avatar. Um and Russo's uh, aesthetic, quite frankly, is very exploitative and um, uh, quite a bit, I would say, uh, you know, just uh, I'll just say quite a bit less substantive in certain respects sure. than what Romero was doing. Um, and even up to today, though, Russo's still out there doing stuff. He just appeared in a movie called My Uncle John is a Zombie. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is supposed to technically kind of be sort of a follow-up to Knight. He's kind of supposed to be his zombie from Knight, even though he's definitively killed in Knight. And now he's like a, a grandpa zombie. And there, <laughs> it was, I think it's George Kazana's last film appearance, who played Sheriff McClellan. And, um, you know, for fans, it's probably fun to take a look at. Right. But, uh, you're not going to find – you're probably not going to find the same level of meaning in that. Yeah, and well, and, and the Return of the Living Dead series, I feel like – I mean, by the time they got to like the the you know the, the you know the the fourth or fifth ones that were like oh, TV movies, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they lost the thread a little bit from from what I could tell. Oh yeah, and the first one I think is brilliant. I, I think there's a lot of stuff in that first movie that really is just absolutely brilliant and and stands the test of time. The second one, 
there are many people that are very fond of the second one. Part of that, I think, too, is that James Karen and Tom Matthews from the first movie come back in the second one as different characters, but also going through the same right. uh, transformation again. There's even a joke in that about, I feel like we've done this before. And, <laughs> and it's much funnier and it, far less of a balance between horror and comedy, much more just a horror comedy. Uh, and although I know there are a lot of people that are affectionate for it, I think too is just terrible. Um, man, I just don't. I don't find the humor funny, and I don't think it's really all that good. But there, there are plenty of people that do like it a lot. And then I think most people would agree. By the time you get to four and five, uh, those are pretty much trash. But the third one is also kind of interesting. The third one with um, Melinda Clark. That's right. As the the title you know the the main living dead character in that there's some interesting stuff in there it's very low budget it's very cheesy and there's a lot of silliness and stupidity but there's also kind of a spark of a really cool idea and having this sort of uh gothed out empowered zombie girl yeah um that makes it worth checking out but that's the last one i think it it certainly feels very early 90s in in its approach and its aesthetic and i think you know i i think for me uh, if I were to if I were to put a pin on what why I preferred uh, the the Romero track is uh, the, the whole the whole trioxin thing the idea that it's a chemical that's doing this that I found that less appealing than the idea that it's just a thing and it's it, it's gonna happen to you whether you like it or not mm-hmm. uh, there's just something yeah. far more terrifying about that yeah I always used to say that I like the idea that in Romero's universe there's this implication that there was just a switch thrown in the universe one day and yeah. death doesn't work anymore. I, I do, however, also point out that when you really watch Night of the Living Dead, Night of the Living Dead does go out of the way to really establish that it's radiation from that's the Venus right. probe. Yeah, that's um, right. And although Romero and the others spent decades afterward denying that that was the intent and saying, well, it's just in there, but really it's not supposed to be. It's like, yes, but the movie not only repeats it, but even has a moment where they say scientists are currently measuring the radiation and it's still there in all the places where the unburied dead are coming. Basically, the movie goes out of its way to tell you this is in fact what's happening. And as long as that radiation is detectable, they're going to come back. So on the one hand, it is in essence a throwback homage to 50s science fiction, which is part of what they were doing. Right. On the other hand, in order to really enjoy it from the more – profound level you can still say well yes the radiation but ultimately what we're really talking about is a world in which death has changed its meaning yeah and and that's all that matters so uh with that in mind uh the 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 2004 you know the Zack snyder james gunn remake mm-hmm. of dawn yeah. of dead now this this is again uh, fairly it seems like in fan circles very polarizing uh i've said uh i think it's a great a, a thriller. I don't find it a particularly effective zombie movie in that to me, uh, I just don't find running, jumping zombies as scary as as shambling you know, decaying zombies. Uh, but I do think that, that uh, it's one of the few examples of a remake that uh, does something interesting where you can watch it side by side with the original and you're going to get two different experiences out of them. Absolutely. And, and uh, I like that movie a lot. I think that uh, – I mean if somebody asked me personally, you, know, you, you you make the choice. What would you prefer? I would say, well, I prefer slow zombies is 
the, my favorite. But the other thing, too, is it's indicative of a time and place. The fast zombie has its own kind of meaning. And particularly post 9-11, we're talking about this major resurgence hmm. of the zombie as an unstoppable juggernaut of terrorism and destruction. And it makes sense. And um, But there's a lot about that movie I love. I think the characterization is very strong. I think Basically, I feel like if that movie had just been given a different title, it wouldn't have been maligned as much as it has been. And again, I think it's also, I think it's also benefiting from some reassessment. And again, it was watching that movie with Natalie that also made me see things differently again. And and a lot of that had to do with her perception again of the central female character of Sarah Polly's character of Anna, and. I always watch that opening sequence, for instance, where she comes home to her husband and takes his shoes off and and uh, just thought, oh, what a, what a nice domestic scene. And then he gets killed and oh, how horrible and everything. Natalie's take on it, however, was did you notice how when she's at the hospital, she can barely you know, uh, assert herself to the doctor when she's clearly been working longer than she should? And her friend asks, have you asked her, you know, him yet if you can do this thing? Like she needs to check with him and when, he go- when she goes home home he hasn't taken his shoes off even though he's already in bed she has to do it hmm. and 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 then the there's the part where she said and why is her car keys right there on the the nightstand she said do you know anybody that brings their car keys up to the bedroom you put it in front of the front door you put it in the, and i was thinking yeah wait a minute and she said that's this is the kind of person who has always been ready to run wow and and i thought whoa that's amazing i have never thought of this before and and yeah, and then looking back, I'm thinking she was pretty clear on how to get out through the bathroom, and and I'm thinking this is somebody who is again used to this kind of situation. And then I said, well, does this mean that her gravitating to Michael later, who seems like the nicest guy in the world, is part of that because he seems like a sensitive, you know, empathetic person, and that puts a light on their you know their relationship doesn't really develop all that much, but there are hints, you know. Yeah. Um, and so there was that, and I also find that the character of Michael is one of my favorite lead characters of any zombie movie ever, because he is such a self-effacing and yet obviously uh, clever and manipulative, not in a bad way, but clever and manipulative person. He sizes people up immediately and knows how to get them to do things by making them feel as if they're the ones who are coming up with it. And huh. That's and then we find out, yeah. And then we find out he just sold TVs at Best Buy, and he's like, "Well, he's a nobody." But no, because in the zombie apocalypse, a nobody is a somebody. So well, and and I think what you just hit on there is something uh, about the the enduring appeal of this genre, whatever form it takes. Is in a weird way, there's the there's that fantasy element of who would I be in this scenario? Yes. You get to reinvent yourself when when there's no more bills to pay and there's no job to go to anymore. Who will you be? And it, it's to be perfectly honest, it's one of the elements of the, the genre I've never dwelled on too much in some of the other things I've written or talked about. But I think that's potentially one of the most potent, particularly for people who may feel lost in a sort of a modern world where there's so many responsibilities and things to do but in this weird perverse way the end of the world is really freeing (laughs) there's so much less you have i mean the the worries become very basic it's about surviving the day not oh i gotta pay this i gotta get to that place at two i gotta do this thing 
And it's like, no, now you just have to find some food, find a place you can board up and then start again tomorrow. I mean, and- I, I, I think I think what you're saying that like it it's really illustrative of all the ways that to a large extent, this genre uh, you know, is is ghettoized, uh, you know, in the eyes of many. Like, oh, it's just these are just it's it's gore porn, you know, and mm-hmm. and yet there's so much going on. Uh, you know, even when we point to something like like the '04 remake, you know, because people love to sort of you know toss tomatoes at Zack Snyder, and I'm always like, well, I mean, I've liked some of his output and I've disliked some of it, but I look at Dawn of the Dead and what he does with that film, which is really bereft of some of his larger stylistic flourishes. Mm-hmm. And it's really, yeah. he just lets the mood build for scenes. You know, there's the great, uh, when Matt Frewer, uh, like the oh. characters are like waiting for him to die and, you know, I yeah. mean, it's, and it's just, it's just playing out in static shots. I, I love that. Uh, Frewer's in like all five minutes of it, but he just owns the scene and, and it's it's also maybe one of the most on the nose statements of a theme, but I just love it where he does the thing you want every single second, and it's just there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff in Dawn of the Dead two thousand four. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I understand like you were saying about the running zombie thing. There's an aesthetic to that that you either respond to, or you don't. It it can you can still look at it and say yeah, just it's not it doesn't work as well. Um, I mean, I always get those kind of questions too. Like a lot of people talk about the slow versus fast. I I sometimes define it. It's it's not uh, it's not a perfect answer. There's always shades of gray, but I always define it as slow versus fast being very similar to the concept to me of well, here's terror and here's horror. So huh. terror perfect. terror is um, terror is the visceral reaction to like the cheetah running you down. It's a it's a it's an engine of death and destruction. It's coming to eat you. It's much faster than you. It's much more powerful. It's going to catch you. You're dead. That's terror. Horror is like Michael Myers walking toward you from like, you know, all the way down the road or that one shambling zombie. And you think, well, this is easy. I can get away. And then there's another one to the right. And you go, that's all right. There's still two of them. And there's the third one. And then there's 50. And it's the slow realization that they're just going to keep going at the same pace and they're still going to get you. That's yeah. horror. So depending on what you react to, what you respond to, both of those are valid ways to approach telling a quote-unquote horror story, but they have different functions. I, I think you summed it up so perfectly. You know, I mean, I, I you know, I remember uh, a few years back, uh, it was it was late at night, and uh, I was my, my car was parked on the street, and it was it was somewhat hazy out. And as I'm opening my car, I glance down the street, and I see, I mean, what appears to me to be just a form that's Uh-oh. very slowly <laughs> clambering towards me. And, you know, this is maybe maybe a block and a half down. And it turns out it's just like this old lady who's like walking <laughs> her dog, you know. But I'll tell right. you that, that you know, 15 seconds of me trying to figure out what the hell I was seeing and like the tumblers clicking in my head wrongly where I'm like, this is it. Zombie apocalypse is where it starts, you know, <laughs> which, yeah, which I think go. far too often, by the way, I've realized that. Oh. We all do, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But but to me, there's just something about that about slowly encroaching dread because it, you know, I I think, uh, and and again, this is less a, a, a question of like, oh, this is better, this is worse. But but I think for me, the the appeal of 
of the clambering, shambling zombie is what it represents for after. So in other words, uh, yes, uh, you know, there's the sense of like, this is what I'm going to become. Whereas, you know, the, the, the Snyder zombies or the, uh, you know, if we want to draw the cord to Alex Garland in 28 days, they're Mm -hmm. like, they're like, uh, uh, you know, uh, they're like war machines. You know what I mean? They're yes, the, the, they're animals. They're animals, exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, they even growl like cougars. I mean, the 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 sounds they make are they're just animals. Right. So yeah, which is yeah, which is certainly uh, terrifying in its own way, as you say. Yeah, and you're and what you just said goes back to one of your earlier points too. It's that it which sounds like that's one of the key things for you is that. The, the zombie, particularly the slow shambling zombie, isn't just a reflection of death. It's a reflection of you're going to be that thing, the loss of your identity yeah. and and transformation. And then what's always fascinating in a lot of zombie stories is when a character either chooses or does not choose consciously. You know what? I'm going to let it happen and yeah. see what happens on the other side. Yeah, and and as I said, I mean, you know, those are the the most uh, unnerving moments. You know, even even uh, uh, Leguizamo in Land of the Dead. You know, yes, he's, I'm going to see how yeah. the other side lives or something. That's what he says, right? And he's yeah, and and he's also one of those ones that's kind of interesting in that some of the stuff he does right after is very much obviously informed by who he was, who he hates when he was alive. Yeah, yeah. right. So there's something still working in there, even if it's just happening because of inertia. There's something going on in there. Man, you know this. This is a genre that continues to to populate our imagination, and and I think it says something about uh, not not just the the enduring appeal of what really what what George Romero and John Russo started fifty years ago exactly. If you're listening to this episode, the date that it drops, but also says something about our collective fears uh, as a people, and uh, and you know the the fears that that draw us together. So I think that's uh, something special and distinctive about zombie movies. Absolutely. It's 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 a genre that stretches back much earlier than them and initially begins with some some serious cultural appropriation. Um, And then, you know, if we just look at from night and and this last 50 years, what they did was take some elements of that and some elements of other things and really create something almost entirely new that then provided this perfect form in which to make all these statements about human nature. And everybody that's come after has either been building on what they did, deliberately trying to counter that in one way or another, but it's all grown out of that sort of seismic event of Night of Living Dead in 1968. Well, uh, I couldn't think of a better way of celebrating the 50th anniversary uh, of that film than by chatting with you. So, Arnold, thank you so much for for coming on the show. And and listeners, uh, the book is Journey of the Living Dead, a tribute to 50 years of flesh eaters, and uh, it is available now. So please do check it out. I, as I as I said uh, before, we got on mic. I'm about a third of the way through, and I'm I'm quickly devouring it. Uh, <laughs> That's the best way to do it. <laughs> but uh, Arnold, if I, I know that you have an online presence, etc., I'm sure our listeners would love to reach out to you. Do you uh, want to uh, spread your social media channel? etc. Sure. So everybody can find me on Twitter at Doctor of the Dead. That's easy enough. I'm just now finishing up as we're recording a 50 tweet, uh, 50th anniversary Night of Living Dead thread uh, that was part of my promotion for the book, where I've been providing some very you know short 280 character commentary on the whole um, Night of Living Dead. Started on April 30th, which was the date that the movie actually begins. Uh, its events. And the last tweet will hit on October 1st. Um, 
the release date of the film. And they can find the book at atbpublishing.com slash zombie. Now, I, I should mention that uh, ATB Publishing uh, also puts out the Outside In series, um, which I got to be a participant in. I was in the uh, uh, 174 New Perspectives on 174 Star Trek The Next Generation stories. So I have a little essay in that. So I hope uh, folks will check that out as well. Absolutely. We love doing the Outside In books. And uh, the one coming up in about a month or so is the, the fifth in the series. And we're jumping from the Doctor Who and the Star Trek universes over to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That's right. I remember hearing about that. Uh, well, Arnold, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope you will uh, come back again and uh, spend another hour delving into another corner of Nostalgia Theater with me. I would be, I would be very happy to do that anytime. Well, thank you so much. And for those of you listening, thank you so much for sticking around to the end of this episode. And uh, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Blumberg, and I do hope you'll check out the book. But in addition to that, I hope you will go to iTunes and leave a review, leave a star rating. Every little bit helps. Tell me what you think of the show by emailing me at moviefilmpodcast at gmail.com or hitting like on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash moviefilmpodcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at Zachy's Corner. That's Z-A-K-I's Corner. That's also my website, justanda.com. I'll be back in just a few short weeks with our next excursion into another shadowy corner of Nostalgia Theater. But until then, my name is Zaki Hassan, and I'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.